Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, the Leeward Campus at Christ Community, and I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, we're delighted you're here. Happy summer! Uh, it's a wonderful day, and uh, we are glad that the sun is shining. Well, when it comes to spiritual experiences, we all have, uh, well, we have a unique history, don't we? We have a myriad of opinions. Uh, shortly after I came to faith as a young boy in Jesus, uh, I remember going with my parents to a tent revival service held in a neighboring town. Now, even though I was young in life and very young in my faith, when I heard the unintelligible sounds of what I understood later to be tongues and saw people falling on the ground, slain in the spirit, as it was called, when I encountered an enthusiastic preacher, healer, who claimed legs were being lengthened, wheelchairs discarded, cancer cured, backs healed, and many more, I knew something wasn't just quite right. Maybe you've experienced something like I did, or maybe you have not. Uh, maybe you've watched a television documentary in some religious phenomenon, in many religious contexts, and uh, you have been concerned about a sort of fraudulent spirituality. And maybe if you grew up, uh, some of you uh, are uh, probably my age, or maybe a few a little older and younger, you grew up in the 70s, and uh, you heard Neil Diamond's hit song. Remember Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show that gave a parody of kind of this circus mentality of a revivalist preacher. Now, whether we are highly skeptical of these kind of things or we are firmly convinced, uh, we all have a history, don't we, through which we interpret religious phenomenon and the miraculous. And I expect we have a lot of unanswered questions and unanswerable questions this morning. We may have had a very powerful and very real spiritual experience that enriched our faith and was life-transforming. We may have seen and experienced the painful splitting of churches and the many frayed friendships with fellow Christians over different understandings of the Holy Spirit in practice. And we have maybe been ourselves or known someone close to us that has been so deeply wounded and experienced such spiritual abuse in a toxic faith ministry or church environment. And let me just say one of my great heartaches as a pastor is I all too often frequently encounter many people who are now deeply disillusioned about the Christian faith. They are often damaged faith refugees from toxic and spiritually abusive environments. But there is also another danger that I encounter in other religi religious faith environments. Many, while embracing doctrinal orthodoxy and faith and practice, somehow God has become confined to a human-sized rationalistic box, a faith that has been hijacked, a faith of the head and not of the heart. See, on one hand, we must avoid an overly spiritualized, toxic faith. On the other hand, we must avoid an anemic, lifeless faith that is quick to throw the spiritual baby out with some dirty bathwater. Let me just say, as Christians, fundamentally, in our worldview, we live in a God-bathed world. We believe, from Genesis to Revelation, that God not only created the world, God is deeply involved in the world. We also believe that there is sin, distortion, deception in the world, 
And the evil one, although defeated, is still deeply active as the great deceiver and liar, along with his many hate-filled comrades of fallen angels, angels that are also deeply active in the world. And what we discover is the gospel opens our eyes. It gives us new vision to the vast spiritual realm, and it calls us to an integral faith, one that deeply embraces both mind and heart. So in navigating our faith journeys, wherever we are, we all, don't we? I mean, if we are just now a Christian, if we're checking church out, if we've been a Christian a long time, wherever we are, we all, don't we, deeply long to experience spiritual reality. We've been created as spiritual beings. We long to feel close to God, don't we? I do. We long to have the legitimacy of our cognitive faith authenticated by our subjective experiences. Yet we also know we need growing wisdom and deepening spiritual maturity that tethers our penchant for subjectivity lest we lose our way and impoverish ourselves and others. So growing in wisdom and maturity is so deeply on the Apostle Paul's heart and mind as he pens this inspired first century letter to the, to the Corinthians or the church at Corinth in Greece. So in our conversation across our campuses. We have been looking at 1 Corinthians. If you're visiting today, we've been walking through this book, and uh, we have been exploring what Paul has been saying to us. And what we have noticed is that repeatedly Paul weaves through his letter the themes that he was concerned about, like a pastor would be, of the deep spiritual immaturity of these people, the spiritual pride, the factions and disunity. And Paul has repeatedly, in a sort of antiphonal literary echoing throughout the book has repeatedly reminded them and us to what? Three refrains. Wise up, Corinthians. Be wise. Secondly, grow up. Grow up in maturity. And third, as we heard last week, as Pastor Reed spoke here, to love better. Because without love, we are just noise. So beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, through the end of chapter 14, as thoughtful listeners and thoughtful literary understanders of the text, Paul focuses on the Corinthians, but he focuses on the misuse of spiritual gifts. So in the church at Corinth, some of the more, let's just use, there's not really good language for this, some of the more visible or perhaps we might say more sensational spiritual gifts, the gifts of prophecy and tongues, had clearly been hijacked by pride and immaturity, and they were wreaking havoc in the church worship services. So the primary context of this text is doing church together on a corporate gathering. So when the Corinthians came to worship, they totally missed what was most important. And of course, we can too. And that's the relevance to us this morning. So the question underlying this, I think, for the Corinthians, for Paul and for each one of us, is this question. How does Paul address this big problem? And I want you to notice, if you've not opened your Bible to 1 Corinthians 14, turn there. I want you to notice that Paul has an overarching idea. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14 if you're not there. And the overarching idea is this, that spiritual gifts are very good things, but they must build others up and not puff us up. Now, 
when Pastor Andrew opened this mini-series, he gave us a wonderful definition of the spiritual gift. So let me re-articulate Pastor Andrew's wonderful definition. He said, a spiritual gift is a Holy Spirit-empowered ability freely given to the believer for the purpose of serving others and building up the church for the common good of all. Spiritual gifts, properly understood, empower each one of us, if we are a follower of Jesus, to do our work well both, don't miss this, both within the church and in the broader world. The spiritual gifts are given not only to uh, help us in doing church, but in doing our paid or unpaid work on Monday, the very first time in the Bible, and this is very important, that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit is Exodus 31, and it's for Bezalel and Ohio to do their carpentry work or their skill work. So we need to understand the spiritual gifts are profoundly pervasive for our life in vocation in all dimensions of life. So Paul has stewardship in mind. And in this text, he gives us two essentials. And if you are taking notes, you might want to try to frame your thoughts around this. Two essentials of what it means to steward well our spiritual gifts. Two essentials. Let me give them to you and, and we'll walk through this text with this sort of structural outline. First, Paul will say, the most uh, crucial essential is to build others up. But Paul will also add another essential, and that is not only build others up, but to grow up in our thinking. So first, build others up. Now here in the first verses of chapter 14 that Peggy read for us, Paul highlights two particular gifts. He's talked about several in this section, but he highlights two, and they are tongues and prophecy. Paul contrasts the gifts of tongues and prophecy, and he introduces two themes that will guide his thoughts throughout the chapter. They are the connecting threads. You've all had a loose thread on your uh, uh, clothes, right? Or a suit or a pair of pants or something like that. You pull the thread and everything unravels. And there's a literary thread that we must not miss. Because let me tell you, this text gets unraveled. The two are intelligibility and edification. Let me restate that. Or we could say understanding and encouragement. That's the primary themes. Paul makes this point right off the docket that prophecy is more important in corporate worship because of its intelligibility. That is, we can understand it. That is, others in the worship service can actually be encouraged by that word. Now notice, if you have your text open, in verse 4, and in verse 5, the word built up is repeated. In fact, it is important to grasp that from a grammatical sense, <clears throat> Paul's point is given prominence. He structures it in its literary structure, notice, so that the church may be built up. See that, so that. It is the inferential end of his argument. The big, so what, or what's this all about? Paul uses this word to describe, in other contexts, human flourishing, the idea of maturing growth in spiritual formation in Christ-likeness in the local church. That is what built up means, of increasing Christ-likeness, not only of individuals, but a collective local church. So the idea of edification and building up is this connecting thread. You'll notice, if you have your Bible open, verse 4, 5, 12, 17, and 26, almost in an echoing symmetry of the text. You hear it in the original language, you hear it, the same word, build up, build up, build up, build up, build up. 
And notice in the text, it is a present tense. Any language has many different tenses, but in this case, you have to see the present tense. In other words, Paul is saying it is an ongoing need for us as we gather for worship to build each other's up. Other up. And we need to understand this. The spiritual gifts, fundamentally, don't miss this, are not for us, but for others. And we've already talked about that in this series. And Paul is just being consistent with that idea. So let me ask a question of reflection as we dive in here a little more. Uh, are we seeking the encouragement for others with our spiritual gifts, whatever they may be, or are we just focused on experiencing for ourselves? See, we've said in this series that it's a challenge for all of us to discover our spiritual gift or gifts, but not only to discover them in service and prayer, but also to deploy them, as Paul has said in the last chapter, with sacrificial love and a focus of others. So do you know what your spiritual gift or gifts are? It's an important question if you're a Christian today. Secondly, are your gifts focused on encouraging others and helping them, or are they about drawing attention to yourself? Some spiritual gifts, by their very nature, <laughs> tend to draw attention to themselves, especially they're visible or speaking or whatever. It's a very perilous thing of pride. One of the things we struggle with, if we are followers of Jesus, is to approach our church involvement right, through the lens of spiritual consumerism. Rather than, Paul is saying, uh-uh, rather than a spiritual gift steward. In other words, the danger is, is to have the mindset that I am part of a local church for me. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, rather than I'm a part of the local church for others. So let me just ask some questions here. This may be meddling, <laughs> but before we press further into this uh, rigorous interpretive terrain, um, is how would our church look differently if we would approach Sunday morning worship, not primarily through the lens of our personal preference, there's nothing wrong with different preferences, but rather through the lens of uh, encouraging others. I, I wonder how much our worship services would be more edifying or encouraging for all if we just took the discipline on Sunday morning to prepare our hearts with prayer before we came. If we disciplined ourselves to arrive on time, we could do that, couldn't we? With all, you know, with grace. We thought less about music preferences, which again, that matters, but sometimes it matters too much. And more about the growth of others around us. How would our church be different if we first look for someone to meet that we didn't know rather than first catch up with someone we do know? Again, both are important. Or if we look for ways to use our gifts in serving each other on Sunday morning. Paul says, build each other up. Build each other up. But the second essential he spends a lot of time on, and remember the backdrop is misuse and immaturity. He says, grow up in your thinking, people. So let's press into that for just a moment. Paul, you'll notice as you follow this text through, Paul builds off the contrasting metaphor of childhood and adulthood. Do you see it? He has already used that as a central metaphor in 1 Corinthians 13 on the love chapter, and he ends it with that. But now he applies it to the use of our spiritual gifts. And notice the connectivity of that literary tissue. Here in verse 20, Paul, from a literature standpoint, you'll notice there are 40 verses in this text, and he creates a hinge, a fulcrum, upon which his whole interpretive structure rests, and it's right in the middle like a, like a tipping point. Verse 20. Verse 20 is vital. And he says, brothers and sisters... 
Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So Paul, when all is said and done, tells us, grow up. Now, I have to say, I said this in an earlier text, I wish the Apostle Paul was here to teach this text. Because this text is the most difficult interpretive terrain for me in the Greek text of all the New Testament. It's not based on my background or my theological framework, it's just the difficulty of it. To know what Paul is saying and not saying, I have studied this text for years. I have read the best scholars on it, and I'm still not sure, in many cases, what Paul is saying and what he isn't. And my solace is found in 2 Peter 3.16. And, and you know that if you've been here a while, I don't usually say this up here. Because I think with the Spirit of God and good literary understanding and lots of study, we can have a pretty good confidence of what the text is saying. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says of Paul, can you imagine this? <laughs> I find solace here. Just, just a moment of, of rest here for a minute. Here, Peter says this, inspired word of God. Here, there are some things in them, which says of Paul, that are hard to understand. And I go, amen. <laughs> but you know, unless I get lots of wonderful, thoughtful emails, which I, I do love, let me give you my best shot. That's all I have. So, this is not the highest level of my interpretive confidence. It's my best shot. So what about tongues? People ask me about this a lot, right? How are we to understand what Paul is saying? First, what do we have high interpretive confidence in? And what don't we? First, in the book of Acts, where we're introduced in the New Testament to this, the tongues are not in the Gospels. They're not, there's no mention of, of Jesus. So just, that's not necessarily bad or good. It's just we start in Acts. In the book of Acts, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit is poured out in a new way in the church. That we know. And one of the evidences in Acts 2, Dr. Luke gives us, as he writes it, is the supernatural empowerment of people to speak in other known human languages they had never learned before. <laughs> wow. And it makes sense. It Acts' main theme is that the gospel goes to the world. So one of the barriers is linguistic barriers. And so the gospel spreads early on because of the gift of tongues to the whole Roman Empire with different languages. So we have a good confidence that the book of Acts gives us this foundation that tongues in, for Luke are known human languages. We have a high level of confidence there. Second, what we have less confidence in knowing is Paul still speaking about a spiritual gift of tongues, uses the same words as Luke, that is a known human language, like what Luke describes in the book of Acts, or is Paul referring to something else? Some very thoughtful biblical Christians say yes, and some thoughtful biblical Christians who are orthodox say no. Some Christians believe the gift of tongues, however it is understood, ceased in the first century, and others believe it's still operative today. Both views are biblical, historical, and logically defensible. So how do I deal with it? How do I interpret what Paul is saying? In light of 1 Corinthians, but in light of the whole canon, or 66 books of Holy Scripture. All of those are important considerations. Paul seems to be saying to me, and as I study it, that there is a spiritual gift given to some believers that is unlike all other gifts. And what is remarkable 
and sometimes disconcerting with my logical life, it's not for the edification of others, primarily. All other spiritual gifts are for the edification of others. The gift of tongues, he seems to be saying in this chapter, is a different kind of tongues, even though he uses the same words, and words have no meaning in themselves apart from context. But it's not a known human language, it seems, in 14. In fact, Paul will say, notice, if you have your Bible open in verse 15, it's not only a private prayer language, it's a private song language. You use the word singing. And over the years, I have met wonderful Christians, biblical Christians, gospel-centered Christians who have experienced a private prayer language that is part of their worship, which they see as a spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit. Let me say this. I don't see their experiences invalid or unbiblical, and it's because of this chapter. Okay? On the other hand, let me be very transparent with you. This is not a gift I have or have I ever experienced it, nor do I seek it. Nor do I believe my prayer life or worship is impoverished in any way because God has not given me that gift. See, whatever the gift is, Satan can entice us to spiritual pride, any gift. And we must guard against that. Now what Paul says in verse 18, he thanks God that he speaks in tongues more than all Corinthians. He also says, now whether that's hyperbole, he, we, you know, we don't know for sure. He uses the tongue of angels in chapter 12. Is that hyperbole or is that a literal reflection of some language? We don't know. We're not sure. You figure it out, okay? And tell me. No, I mean, I, we're not sure. I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm just saying this is a difficult interpretive terrain. And if you go too far like hiking in the mountains, you fall off a cliff of imbalance or extremes. So we just have to walk a little delicately with humility. Verse 19, Paul points out the Corinthians kept disrupting the worship service. And he says, hey, I'd rather speak 10,000 intelligible words than five unintelligible words in a tongue, right after verse 18. And Paul also makes the case that the Corinthians during a worship service are going to make, if they're going to make their private language public, whatever language we want to use, this is the only other gift where another gift has to be present to do it. There has to be an interpretation for intelligibility. I don't understand how that all works. But that's what the text seems to say. However we understand what Paul is saying, we want to hear this, of the importance of intelligibility in a worship service. Now, Dr. Don Carson is a friend of mine, and I think he's, if not the finest, he's one of the top New Testament scholars in the world. And I commend his wonderful little book on this section called Showing the Spirit. It's one of the finest commentaries on this section. It's very accessible. Showing the Spirit, D.A. Carson. But this is what he says. I like this. He says, whatever the place for profound, for a profound personal experience and corporate emotional experience, the assembled church is a place for intelligibility. Our God is a thinking, speaking God, and if we will know him, we must learn to think his thoughts after him. Then he writes, I am not invalidating what Paul has refused to invalidate. I think that's a good balance. Wouldn't you? He says, I'm merely trying to reflect his conviction that edification or building up in the church depends utterly on what? Intelligibility, understanding, and coherence. Paul says, grow up in your thinking here. Okay, so that's a little on tongues. What about prophecy? <laughs> if tongues were difficult, prophecy is maybe more difficult. Here in chapter 14, verse 1, you'll notice Paul sets the stage. He says, earnestly desire, desire spiritual gifts, but notice the ascension emphasis of especially. It's a good translation. 
that you may prophesy. Now, like the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy is understood in orthodox circles in vastly different ways. So may unpack some foundational questions that help you come to your understanding of what this means. I am not sure. This is a lower level of confidence called humble confidence, I hope. First, a foundational question must be raised. And that is the relationship of the Old Testament to the New in all interpretive structures. But when it comes to prophecy, is there a great similarity to New Testament prophecy and Old Testament, or is there dissimilarity? You want to impress your friends, you call it in circles the continuity-discontinuity debate of Scripture, just if you want to do that. But difference and similarity. We have prophets in the Old Testament that literally convey the Word of God, the spoken Word of God. And they predict the future. And if they missed anything, they were stoned. It's pretty big stuff. Here in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul uses the word prophecy, but does he use the same kind of idea? Is there some difference? I would suggest to you that I think there is. There's a bit of difference, I think, in this idea in the New Testament. Here it seems to me, in context, that Paul is emphasizing not the prediction of some grand future, but rather, in the first century before the Scriptures are completed in the canon, which means the 30 or 27 books of the New Testament, but they're explaining in this time the truth of God that has been revealed so that others in the church can understand it. They didn't have the New Testament. Now, what all that means, you can kind of wrestle with that. But that's true. I mean, that's a, that's a foundational understanding. Another important consideration in figuring out what this is, again, is that the New Testament once it is completed, is our primary authority. This is very important. We are people of this book, and this book is inerrant and inspired, not anybody's spoken word. That's not to say that spoken words can have truth and unction, but we need to understand that prophecy, no matter who it is, and what they think it is, and what, what they believe God has told them, never never circumvents the clear teaching of Scripture. We just need to remind ourselves of that. What is my understanding? I know you're going to ask me this question, so I'm going to give it to you. My understanding, or you say present understanding, of the New Testament idea of the gift of prophecy is what we call well-informed, spirit-empowered preaching to a local church congregation. I see the gift of prophecy being a Holy Spirit-guided, anointed unction, that's an old, old Puritan word, that brings God's revealed truth after study, in study, and in delivery of that message, persuasively in the power of the Holy Spirit, home to every heart and mind of the listener. You may see it a bit differently, but I'm, that's where I am now. Don Carson, again, I think, brilliantly, communicates this. In this book, Showing the Spirit, he says, there is, in fact, a very sustained tradition throughout church history, which is really true, that identifies New Testament prophecy with what we today call preaching or expounding scripture. Now, let me say, the interpretive train here is rough, it's challenging, and we need to approach it with humility because we may see it differently. What we do know with great confidence, don't miss this. Some of you, I might have gone, or amen, some of you, uh, I've lost you. What we do know with great confidence, friends, is that spiritual gifts are not about the receiver. They are about the giver and glorifying Jesus. 
And very importantly, my finger, sorry about that. Very importantly, spiritual gifts are not an indicator or evidence of spiritual maturity. This text screams against that idea or of spiritual formation. Now, with the spiritual gifts we've been given, we are to grow in Christ and to use them with greater maturity. So often, people think spiritual gifts, however sensational or quiet, are because somehow I'm really in touch with God more than others. And it's a deadly thing. Okay? However we understand the spiritual gifts, we must not miss that all of them are designed to build others up. And notice in this text, we often miss this, friends. Paul emphasizes an intentional understanding that in any corporate worship service, there are unbelievers in Jesus. Do you see that? He talks about tongues, and people are going to think you're nuts if they don't know Jesus, right? That's, basic, that's a little loose translation, but out of your mind, it's kind of nuts. So Paul, isn't it interesting? He creates a space in a corporate worship service in the first century with all the diversity and question and mystery here to be sensitive to unbelievers who might be there. Wow, hello church. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian yet or you're a skeptic of the Christian faith, you are so welcome here. And we want you to know that we try to craft worship services and messages. Even though this text and this this message, it might seem kind of out there for you. But we want to communicate in ways that are intelligible. And I just want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, to focus on Jesus first. Focus on his teaching, who he is, his death, his resurrection, the implication for your life and meaning and purpose and wholeness and forgiveness and love. Focus on Jesus first. And for those who are followers of Jesus, let's think about the barriers that we may erect in a local church against other people coming into our worship who maybe not know Christ. Are there barriers? I was... uh, at a conference in Denver with my bride Liz not long ago. She's just finished her graduate degree in, in counseling. And it's a uh, conference in Denver for Christian psychologists and psychologists and counselors. It's amazing. Now, I'm not trained in that. It's another profession, right? I go to other kinds of crazy conferences with all kinds of high technical words. But I walked in the conference and I heard words I didn't understand. And jokes, inside jokes that I didn't understand, wasn't they were saying wrong. I just needed Liz to sort of help me understand some of the technical language. And when I realized what that was like, I'm thinking, you know, we do that in the church. I can do that very easy. That we often use insider language or we don't explain our terms. And our teaching team is really working on not just raising the level of our intellectual thought, which is important to love God with our mind, but to explain it in words that we understand. So I think there's a place here to remind us all, hey, Let's make sure when we gather that we craft and pray and seek the Lord in the Spirit of God to have worship services that are filled with grace and truth and beautiful and intelligible and open to everyone who walks in the door. Boy, Paul seems to say that here, that love guides us, even the most intense, where you say spiritual gifts, it can be controversial. So spiritual gifts are good things. And Paul says over and over again in this text, we must use them to build up others. Okay, so let me close out this message with a pastor's heart. I've already told you this is one of the most challenging texts of all of Scripture. But let me give you three reminders that are on my heart. First, watch for the danger of spiritual abuse. We don't talk about that much in the church, and we should. 
Physical, emotional, spiritual abuse is a very real and a very damaging thing. Paul reminds us, you'll notice in verse 33 and then 40, of overarching themes. First of all, God is not a God of chaos or confusion, but of peace, shalom, wholeness, and love. Verse 40, he ends this section, but all things should be done decently and in order. There's a respect for a plurality of authority in the local church. God's designed it to protect us from abuse. We are very aware of dangerous, toxic faith that gives anyone undue authority to anyone in the church, especially those who would assert a special word from God or view themselves as authoritative prophets. This is a delicate thing, but it can be a dangerous thing. Abusive cults spring up in many religious traditions, but certainly in the Christian faith, when authoritative leaders implicitly or explicitly affirm they have some special hotline to heaven, the Lord told me that has to be handled very delicately and very carefully. Be very careful with stuff like that. Because excessive spiritual authority over others is incredibly toxic. Spiritual authority in the scriptures is centered not in an individual person like me or anyone else here, however sincere, informed, or uninformed, or convincing they may be, but in the written and inspired word of God, the 66 books of the Bible, which we sit under its authority. That's why we are called throughout the New Testament to examine the scriptures carefully to see if what we are being taught is in alignment with scripture. Yes, there are very challenging things to grasp in scripture, but the essentials are compellingly clear for anyone, lest they drift into progressive theology, to heresy, or to toxicity. God gave you and me a mind, and if you're a Christian, the spirit of God to have discernment. As Christians, we are people of this book. I uh, was reminded again of the danger of spiritual deception. I went fishing recently. I hadn't gone fishing in a long time. And uh, one of our wonderful parishioners took me fishing. Loves fishing, and uh, we had a guide with us. Really smart guy. He's fished all his life. He knows fish better than anybody I've ever, ever heard of. He said something to me about the key. I asked him, you know, what is the key? Because I, I love learning everywhere I go. What's the key to being a really good guide? He said, you match the hatch. In other words, if you're a fly fisherman or you do fishing, you know that fish bite at certain times based on certain kinds of things they're eating. So if you can figure out what they're presently eating in that context or that side, that whatever the environment is, you can deceive them and hook them. And I thought, you know, <clears throat> that's true in our spiritual life, isn't it? See, Jesus is not only a fisher of men, Satan is one too. And he knows how to match the hatch. And we need to be discernment, have discernment collectively as a church family. Our church position on this issue from the very beginning continues, I think, with wisdom. And that is when it comes to the miraculous, particularly some of these more sensational or visible gifts, we are truly open, but we are wisely cautious. Here's the statement that we began with at Christ Community 27 years ago, and we have it written. We believe there's no scriptural warrant for tongues and signs and wonders, notice, as a central focus of the church's ministry. I think that's really important. That's what Paul's saying. We do not deny, on the other hand, to seek to suppress the supernatural work of God to heal, to give guidance, or to give restoration. But we need to be careful about the danger of spiritual abuse. Secondly, on the other side, 
we need to be very open to the surprising work of God. While we are very sensitive to spiritual deception and fraud and abuse, Christ's communion, we are also very open to the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul says with balanced words, pursue love, but desire earnestly spiritual gifts. In our brokenness, there's always a danger of overreacting to abuse in the subjective realm by minimizing the more visible and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the Thessalonians with strong languages, like in Greek language of smothering a fire. Do not quench the Spirit of God. Somehow we can quench it. I remember <clears throat> building campfires as a kid. And I, if you want to get rid of a campfire quick, you threw tons of dirt on it or put a blanket on it. It just quenches the fire. We can quench the Holy Spirit in many ways. And that is also toxic and dangerous. See, the surprising work of the Holy Spirit may be something very unusual. It may be, it may be very sensational, but most times it occurs in the quiet, unseen places of the human heart where only God gets the glory. For example, a surprising work of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine may be coming to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, experiencing forgiveness or, or a new kind of insight in life or a new renewal in your spirit. Or it may be a quiet transformation in your marriage or family relationship or close friendship that is reconciled and restored. Or an emotional illness that now finds new hope and strength or a very specific answer to prayer. Let's be open to a surprising work of God. And let's be discerning that the surprising work of God often comes in quiet, unseen places as well as more visible places. Third, look for opportunities to serve others. In chapter 12, Paul frames the spiritual gifts with brilliant wisdom and laser beam focus. He says it's all about serving others and flourishing the common good. Notice verses four through seven. This is a great way to end this series. Now there are a variety of gifts for the same spirit. There are a variety of service with the same Lord, and there are a variety of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. How can you and I, in our places of work, our neighborhoods, at school, with our friends, how can we be filled with the Holy Spirit and use the gifts of the Spirit to serve others this week? Jesus, the most gifted and brilliant being of the universe, who had all the spiritual gifts imaginable, that we know of, and probably more we don't know of. He went to the cross, didn't he? He shed his blood for you and me. He picked up a basin and towel and washed his disciples' dirty feet. You imagine in that upper room that night before the crucifixion, <laughs> the flabbergasted disciples were stunned when he took the form of a servant. And Jesus said to them, you call me teacher and Lord, Rabbi, you are right, for so am I. If then I, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. However we understand the spiritual gifts, may the spiritual gift or gifts we have been individually given never puff us up with pride, never divide us, but rather build us up together as we pick up the basin and towel of humble service in the Lord's name. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, fill our hearts. Fill our hearts with love. 
for Jesus and for each other in a broken world. Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth and keep us from evil and form us into greater Christ-likeness. Amen.